Thing. I want to introduce our lesson with a word that perhaps is distasteful to some, not distasteful to others. It may depend upon how active we are. And the word is exercise. Does that have a positive or a negative connotation? When we think about exercise... Well, we are certainly being admonished in the world in which we live today to, to exercise, whether we are uh, young or whether we are old. We're told that exercise is good from the cradle to the cemetery, uh, virtually, and that all of us need to be involved with exercise. Well, there's a passage in Scripture that has something to say about Exercise, First Timothy 4 and verse 8. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. The idea here is that bodily exercise, according to the Apostle Paul, profits for a little, that is a little time, and has benefit. But it is temporary. Whatever the benefits of of physical exercise are, they are, they are temporary. Obviously, they don't last forevermore. But what about godliness? Godliness is profitable for all things. Now, notice this part of the verse. Having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. That's where I want us to concentrate our thoughts this morning, on the, the promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. It is the promise of godliness. In other words, if we determine that we are going to be godly, then there is a promise, a twofold promise, that is set forth for us by the Apostle Paul. That twofold promise is present and perpetual, if you will. The life that now is, that's the present promise. And of that which is to come, that's the perpetual promise. In other words, that's a promise that is going to endure for all eternity. Now, that's quite a promise. That is quite a promise. It is a much greater promise than that which is associated with physical exercise. That profits for a little time, and it is obviously temporary and deals with just the body primarily. But here's the promise of godliness that is both present and perpetual. Think with me, first of all, about the present promise. The present promise. What is that present promise? First of all, it involves pardon. The present promise of godliness is the assurance that we have been pardoned, that we have been forgiven. And oh, what a promise that is, the promise of pardon. Paul expresses it this way in Colossians 1, verses 12 through 14. Giving thanks to, to the Father. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love in whom we have, here it is, pardon or redemption through His blood. Here it is again, pardon, the forgiveness of sins. 
One can only imagine the exhilaration that a prison inmate feels if indeed he has been incarcerated wrongly and ultimately his appeals have been exhausted, but finally he receives a pardon, a pardon. But think of the exhilaration that should be characteristic of every child of God who has become the recipient of the promise of godliness in the present tense, and that is pardon, to be forgiven. We have been translated from darkness into light. Oh, and if you were here the last, uh, not the last two, they weren't in succession, but Jared had a had a two-part study that I was privileged to listen to one part of on the way back from Indianapolis and the other part after I got back on light. What a beautiful word study that was. How it demonstrated to us the power of light, the appreciation that we have for light in the physical sense. But here, here Paul calls attention to the deepest possible appreciation for the greatest light that has been shown in our lives, and that is that light of the gospel that has allowed us to be translated from darkness, from darkness into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption. That's that pardon, the forgiveness of sins. The present promise also carries with it peace. And really, peace flows logically from pardon, doesn't it? Because when you come to the full realization that you have met the conditions that bring about pardon, that is, that you have believed in Jesus Christ with all of your heart, you fully repented of your sins, confessed Him to be the Christ, and have submitted to that watery burial where the blood of Jesus has redeemed you, has cleansed you, has pardoned you, you rise from that watery grave with a feeling of peace that permeates your entire being. Because there's relief there that brings that peace. I've often cited the first time the gospel was preached as an example of the transformation that takes place from guilt to gladness. From that joy, from that guilt to the joy and the, and the peace that follows it. As those on Pentecost were convicted that they had crucified the Christ, the Son of the living God, and cried out, many of them, men and brethren, what shall we do? They believed, and Peter said to them, Therefore repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. You shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then those who gladly received His word were baptized. They gladly received the word because they were filled overflowing with guilt. And when they heard they could be relieved of that guilt and that they could have peace in their lives once again, They responded, some 3,000 did, and obeyed the gospel and once again enjoyed peace. But this time, the peace they enjoyed was not a false peace. Do you think that any of those 3,000, before they heard the gospel preached for the first time, believed they were in peace and at peace? Oh yes, many of them believed they were at peace with God. There are tragically many today who believe that they are at peace with God. But the point is... The present promise of godliness is a promise of peace as only Christ can give that peace. And thus to the apostles he said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Not as the world gives, and we could add, not as false religion gives, because tragically false religion and those 
who have partaken of the tenets of false religion believe they are truly at peace. But the key is, do they enjoy the peace that only Christ can give? And that peace comes only in fulfillment of the promise of godliness, and godliness comes only through obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ. One cannot be truly godly without doing those things that produce godliness. Pardon comes from obedience to the gospel, and peace, perfect peace, flows from that pardon that is obtained only through obedience to that gospel. It is then and only then that we can truly have hearts that are not troubled. It is truly then that we can have hearts that are not afraid. These words were spoken by Jesus to a group of despondent disciples whom he was about to leave to go back to the Father. But they certainly have application to disciples for all time to come, for as long as time stands. And they tell us that the present promise that comes from pardon, that comes from obedience to the gospel, produces peace. What did Paul say about this peace? In Philippians chapter 4, 6 and 7, to those who have embraced that peace, who have received that promise of peace through the pardon that comes from obedience to the gospel, for all who've done that, he says, don't be anxious about what? Most things? No, don't be anxious about anything. Be anxious for nothing. Why? Because you have a peace that surpasses all understanding. Doesn't mean you don't have genuine concerns, that you don't express those concerns, that you don't have challenges, but he's saying don't be anxious for anything. Don't be characterized by worry, as the Lord himself said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, beginning at verse 25. Be anxious for nothing, Paul says here, but in everything by prayer and supplication, and he undergo, underscores it with this, with thanksgiving. That should always be there. With thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And here it is. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. The world out here cannot understand it. Those who've never enjoyed the peace because they've never done those things to bring about that true peace cannot understand how this peace surpasses all understanding, and it will guard your hearts and minds, but here's the key, through Christ Jesus. The present promise is a promise of pardon. It's a promise of peace, but it's also, and this one may surprise you, it's also a promise of persecution. Did you ever think about persecution as a promise? Generally, we associate good things with promises. And there's nothing wrong with that because generally, promises do connote good things. But the scriptures very definitely promise us persecution. And that is not in and of itself a negative thing, but actually a good thing. So persecution is a promise that has with it or carries with it some very positive Attributes. Think of some passages. First of all, here's the promise. If you needed a passage, and we do need to back up what we say with Scripture, don't we? Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Notice, godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is. Paul says if you live godly, if you desire to, to be godly, you will, here's the promise, you will suffer persecution. 
It will come at some time. It will come in some degree if you live long enough as a Christian, as one who is godly. And Peter, in 1 Peter 2.21, in the context of persecution that these Christians were undergoing at the time he penned this first epistle, in the context of suffering persecution, he says, for to this, this persecution he's talking about, this kind of persecution, for to this you were called. That fits perfectly with what Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 12. You desire to live godly, you will suffer persecution. Peter says you were called to this. You were called to this kind of existence, which includes persecution. And then he adds, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Christ suffered. Christ Christ suffered immensely. He suffered in various ways and at various times. And ultimately, he suffered in a way that is unthinkable from the standpoint of deity bearing the sins of all mankind upon his sinless shoulders and the separation that that brought about for a time as the Father, as it were, turned away and prompted the cry from Calvary, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Humanity cannot fully comprehend the suffering that deity endured at that moment during that time. But he suffered. He suffered, and he left us an example that we should be willing to follow in his steps. And what does Peter write elsewhere in that same epistle? But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him what? Glorify God in this matter. Let him glorify God in this matter. Indeed. Because if the persecution comes as a result of godliness, then it is indeed a clear indication that we are doing what God wants us to do if we suffer righteously and we're suffering in emulation of the example of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, glorify God in that suffering. And isn't that what Jesus tells us to do in the great Sermon on the Mount? As he concludes those beautiful Beatitudes in Matthew 5, 10 through 12, he says this, Blessed are those, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Doesn't that help us to see how persecution can be a promise associated with something positive, something good? We're blessed. We're blessed by God when we suffer for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He elaborates, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We don't know what lies ahead for the church before our lives, regardless of our age, have ended. There may be persecution that we have never known to a degree that we've never experienced in our lives. We simply do not know. But we do know 
that persecution in some form and to some degree either already has come or it will come in the lives of everyone who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus. How should we respond to it? How should we react to it? Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, because you're not the first one, Jesus says, to have been persecuted, nor will you be the last. Therefore, make sure that you respond appropriately to that persecution. We looked at a passage in Bible class this morning as we were talking briefly about mothers and the appreciation that we have for godly mothers. The passage is Mark chapter 10, and we didn't elaborate on the phrase that is found in that, but we shall do so now because it fits with the lesson we are studying. In Mark 10, 29 and 30, Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. And here's the phrase, with persecutions is thrown in there. With persecutions. And then he adds, follows that with, and in the age to come, eternal life. You're going to be so blessed living a godly life. You're going to have mothers, multiple mothers in the sense. And I mentioned how many godly women had influenced my life. And you can no doubt think of of others. You have folks that you feel like are family to you with whom you've been able to spend precious time and who've influenced your life. And of course, Christians are your spiritual family. But oh, I think all of us who've lived as Christians for any length of time can fully identify with this promise of Jesus. But we also need to fully appreciate what he mentions in the midst of that promise about mothers and sisters and brothers and sisters and lands and houses and so forth with persecutions. But with those persecutions, we rejoice even in that. Because great is our reward in heaven for so persecuted they, the prophets, who were before you. Now let's move to the perpetual promise. We've seen the pardon and the peace and the persecution promised in the life that now is, the present promise. We only have one word to consider, one element to consider in the perpetual promise. And here it is, perfection. That's all we need to say. The promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. What is the promise of that which is to come? Absolute perfection. Perfection. No more persecution. No more death. No more sorrow. No more sickness because God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have diminished. No, they have passed away. We have moved into the perpetual side of the promise of godliness and that will never change the former things have passed away and so the promise of godliness in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 8 
is the promise that now is pardon with everything that that connotes and oh how much it should connote for us if we have received that pardon and peace something for which man seeks constantly but looking for it tragically for the most part in all the wrong places and in the wrong sense of peace but the promise of godliness is the peace that Jesus gives John 14 27 as we noted and yes the promise if you can imagine it of persecution I promise indeed I think we have certainly backed that up with passage after passage that makes it abundantly clear that we're promised persecution but we're also promised that we can rejoice even in that persecution. You know, in Acts chapter 5, a passage we didn't look at a few moments ago, but we see a beautiful example of that as the apostles were called before the Sanhedrin early in their work for the Lord after his ascension to the Father. They set the apostles before the council and the high priest asked them, this is verse 28, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? That takes us back to Acts 4. And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. And then he elaborated further about the Christ. And when they heard this, verse 33, they were furious and took counsel to kill them. Gamaliel intervenes here. And at the conclusion of this encounter with the Sanhedrin, verse 40 says, and they agreed with, with him. This is Gamaliel and his uh, intervention, which appeased them for the time. But they still wanted to do something to them. And so they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And what does verse 41 say? So they departed from the presence of the council. Now they've been beaten. And that couldn't have been a pleasant thing at all. They had to be hurting physically. So they departed from the presence of the council rethinking their position. No, how about rejoicing, not rethinking rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And verse 42 says, And daily in the temple and in every house they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. The promise of persecution and a demonstration of how we respond to the promise when it's fulfilled. Rejoice that you're counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Christ. That is, by his authority. And then look forward to that promise that is yet to come. A promise of absolute perfection. So when we think about exercise, we need to exercise ourselves toward godliness. And that takes us back one verse in 1 Timothy 4 to verse 7 which leads to the promise of godliness in verse 8.
Nothing wrong with physical exercise. We should take care of ourselves as well as we can. But really the exercise that we need to be absolutely determined that we're never going to stop doing is that exercise of ourselves toward godliness. Becoming more God-like, more Christ-like every day as we do what? As we exercise. I think of Hebrews chapter 5, and it's a good passage really, I think, with which to close by way of contrast to the admonition here in 1 Timothy 4, 7 to exercise ourselves toward godliness. And here in Hebrews 5, we find a group of people that were not keeping up their exercise spiritually. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, the Hebrews writer declares, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. Who are they? That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Exercise. Exercise yourself toward godliness. Well, the first set of exercises, so to speak, before you can ever think about godliness is that set that involves the plan of salvation. You see, you have to believe, repent, confess, and be baptized in order to enter into godliness and to have opportunity to grow more godly each day as you continue to exercise yourself to godliness. And so, for those here this morning who have never expressed their faith in Christ, realize that Jesus said, unless you believe, you will die in your sins. But that faith has to be expressed in repentance. For Jesus said, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all like, in like manner perish. Luke 13, 3, and again at verse 5. Faith only cannot save. Faith must move us to repent. But then Jesus said, Confess me before men, and I'll confess you before the Father in heaven. Matthew 10, 32. With a heart, Paul wrote, Man believes unto righteousness. With a mouth, confession is made unto in the direction of salvation. But we're not there yet. The final exercise of faith that puts us into a godly condition is baptism. Denied by so many today, tragically, but affirmed so clearly in Scripture by the Lord himself who said this, He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. Mark sixteen sixteen, The blood of Jesus awaits the penitent believer, but he must go down into that watery grave to be cleansed from every sin, to enjoy the pardon that is the present promise of godliness, to enjoy the peace, and yes, to prepare for the persecution. But until and unless he goes down into that watery grave to be cleansed by the blood, there's a fountain free, as we're about to sing. It's a fountain filled with blood. It's applied only when you submit by faith to that watery burial. Will you do that this morning? And if you've done that and you knew the joy that came from pardon and peace that followed, perhaps you allowed persecution or 
the world to draw you away. We plead with you, if that's your condition this morning, to come home to your first love, your first love, and to love again as you once loved, and to enjoy again the promise of godliness that once was yours. Here, and in anticipation, anticipation of eternity hereafter. What a promise. What a promise. It can be yours today if you'll respond as we stand and sing to encourage you.